Hello, Rose friends. The holidays are behind us and it's time to start chatting about roses. Now, if you've been following me on social media, you know that I've been counting down the days lunch of spring since the day after Christmas. Are you as ready as I am? The new year, the clean slate, it's just waiting to be filled with new ideas, tips, and tricks. And I'm very excited to tell you that we have a strong start to our rose season. Now, just like last year, we will release new shows on the second and fourth Sundays, except for our spring fling in March. Then we'll release a new show each week, just to get us growing for the new season. Now, for our spring fling, we will hear from some of our favorite experts like Gay Hammond, Elena Williams, and Natalie Carmoli, as well as someone new to Roast Chat, Spencer Thomas from Great Big Plants. Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> I can't wait. It's time for the Rose Chat Podcast, a podcast dedicated to celebrating the world's most beloved flower, the rose. Join award-winning gardeners Chris Van Cleef and Teresa Byington as they chat with rose lovers and experts from around the globe. With each episode, you'll gain valuable knowledge and insights to achieve the rose garden you've always dreamed of. Listen now as we explore the world of roses. Try Haven Brand Soil Conditioners, providing generations of gardeners with a truly all-natural alternative to chemical fertilizers with their line of composted manure and alfalfa teas easy to brew and use on all indoor and outdoor plants. Find them online at manuretea.com. Well, today we officially kick off 2023 with Jason Crouch from Fraser Valley Roses. We're talking rose stories and legends and how roses have weaved their way into Western culture throughout the ages. So get ready, friends. Jason is not only a great storyteller, but no one I know has more Rose stories than he does. Hey, Jason. Well, Welcome back to Rose Chat. Well, thanks for having me back, Teresa. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to today. You've got a bunch of stories to share. So let's get started. Right. And I guess I should say up front that really these are just stories and they're not uh, intended to be taken literally or as the truth. There's lots of people working on DNA and figuring out where roses actually came from, but roses come along with their stories. And uh, we really do love our stories. And I guess what I'd say is who am I to let the truth or get in the way of a good story, right? We do love our stories. And I want to start with a story near and dear to my heart, Giseline de Falagon. I'm probably butchering that. But this rose has a huge presence in my garden. She's covering my potting shed and she does so beautifully. But until we talked recently, I didn't know her story. Aguilera de Felagond is a lovely rambler and it earns several spots in my own garden, but how much more interesting because it comes with this fanciful story. And in the early catalogs, it came along with this story that uh, Ghislaine was named for a French nurse who braved crossing the enemy lines in World War I to rescue her wounded husband, the Count of Felagond. Now, never mind the fact that at the time <laughs> of World War I, uh, Ghislaine de Felagond was just a toddler. Uh, so it's not really a true story, but it is a fanciful and romantic story, and one that I'm sure featured well into Selling the Rose, because we love our romantic stories. <laughs> well, regardless of the facts, I do prefer to think of Ghislaine as a brave nurse. <laughs> She'll be taking care of my potting shed for years. Love it. 
Okay, now let's head to the medieval Europe where rose stories were not only interesting, but oftentimes they went straight to the heart. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, roses were uh, such a cultural phenomenon in medieval medieval Europe uh, that they were woven into all these stories. And uh, one of the early stories of star-crossed lovers was that of Tristan and Isolde, uh, which is one of the earliest Mm -hmm. examples of this. And in this story, Isolde was uh, married to the king. Uh, So the romance with Tristan, one of his knights, was uh, forbidden and bound to end poorly, I'd have to say. So some versions of this story blame the affair on a love potion made from roses. And the final flourish of the story is that a rose bramble emerges from the place where the two lovers die. So um, this is a this is sort of like that classic convergence of love, but also forbidden love, danger, secrecy. And this theme with roses carries on into modern plays like uh, Romeo and Juliet, which is pretty derivative of Tristan and Isolde. Uh, And it still has that forbidden love, secrecy, and of course, that famous line about a rose by any other name. (laughs) Roses make it easy, easy to weave them into a love story with their beauty and their fragrance. But of course, the thorns. Well, for sure. And taken at face value, I guess that's where this uh, cultural baggage comes from, is that you have the beautiful flowers, the romantic fragrance, but there's also the thorns. So there's an association with love, but also with pain and danger. Uh, But that came from long before the Middle Ages. Roses carried uh, cultural baggage from the ancient world. Uh, You got to remember that we're dealing with a plant that has been in cultivation Mm -hmm. for over 2000 years. So the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, they all had their own folklore featuring roses And in those cases, we'd be mostly likely talking about the Damask Rose of the ancient world uh, that's widely grown today for perfume and rose water and culinary use across the world. Well, um, since my trip to Turkey, speaking of the fragrance side of things, I'm totally infatuated with Damask Roses. So let's talk about those. Oh, for sure. Um, And based on history and genetics, and now I'm talking about real stories here, it seems like the Damask Rose uh, traveled from Central Asia along the Silk Road to to Persia. And one of the parent species of the Damask Rose was only native to Central Asia. So it's telling that virtually all of the modern roses in the West and as far East as Russia and India are derived, uh, sorry, the modern words for rose are derived from ancient Persian. So we know that it's spread from that center uh, of coming from the terminus of the Silk Road. Mm-hmm, absolutely. <clears throat> Another story, when I was in Istanbul, I visited the Sultan's palace. Roses were everywhere. They were not in bloom, sadly, I must say, but they were everywhere. And a story we heard while we were on tour there was that um, one of the Sultans had a special kitchen, and it was dedicated just to the making of his favorite jelly, which was rose hip jelly. Oh, yeah, it's, a, it, it's used culinary uh, all across the, the Middle East and across the world. Uh, and you can imagine in the ancient world how much it was coveted for uh, both those culinary uses and then, of course, for its fragrance and uh, romance. And so uh, it traveled through the seaports of the Mediterranean. And one of the great civilizations of the time, the Egyptians, took a special interest in roses. Uh, they associated that annual cycle of blooming and then uh, dying back with uh, love and, of course, death. And their goddess Mm -hmm. Isis uh, was used the rose as one of her her symbols. And it was also used in the rituals around mummification. So as far back as 
Egypt. It had that association with both love and with death and secrecy. Uh, so that's a that's kind of uh, carried forward into other civilizations as they as they took it forward. Well, we know the Romans couldn't get enough of roses, so that made for some interesting stories. Yeah, the Romans. Uh, loved the roses almost to their own detriment as the stories go. They were so heavily in demand for the <laughs> Rosalia Festival. They were so heavily in demand for the Rosalia Festivals, and that's a spring festival in, in Rome, that most of the productive agricultural land around Rome itself was converted from grain crops to rose gardens, drawing criticism from the Roman poet Horace. Uh, the Rosalia, Rosalia celebration centered around honoring the dead with the petals of roses, and violets. And in some stories, uh, the emperor would have layers of rose petals uh, scattered before him when he walked in the street. So his feet would never even have to touch the cobblestones. Uh, that's how important it was. Uh, in one other story, which is pretty horrifying, actually, the uh, emperor Heliogobulus held a party where he released so many petals of roses and violets from the false ceilings that many of his guests were smothered to death under the weight of the flowers. So that's taking it to oh an extreme, I'd have to say. Oh gosh. Well, that's a horrifying story indeed, but good job on pronouncing the emperor's name. I'm not <laughs> sure I could have done that well. Well, the empire may have fallen, but we know the rose craze did not. So let's talk about what came next. Sure, and I'm not going to outright blame the fall of the Roman Empire on roses, <laughs> but there's definitely some association between the stories of Roman decadence and the decline of their civilization. But what followed that was what's called the Dark Ages after the fall of the Roman Empire. And it gives a little gap in the literature and the art about roses, but it picked right back up again in the early medieval period uh, where Europeans sort of, I'm going to put it this in quotes, rediscovered roses with a passion. Uh, so some stories have that the Crusaders returned with roses from the Holy Lands, uh, where the traditional name of the Damask rose was picked up. And I know there's differences in pronunciation here between uh, Damask and Damask. And I only say because it originated from the city of Damascus, or at least traditionally, that I call mm -hmm. it Damask, but not that it really matters how you pronounce it. And the tale goes that the rose was collected, or I guess you'd call it plundered, <laughs> and brought back to Europe by the French crusader uh, Robert Debris. Uh, in reality, it's far more likely that the Damask, the Elba, and the Gallica roses remained in Europe through the Dark Ages in monastery gardens uh, and the like. So honestly, whichever way they came back to the, from the Dark Ages, their return to popular culture was pronounced. It hit Europe with a boom, and you can see it in all of the mm -hmm. art and literature mm -hmm. and even religion. So they were integrated into Catholic symbols and rituals. And uh, if you look in old uh, Catholic cathedrals, there's the rose windows, rosary beads, artwork, and um, even miracles involving roses. So that was, it was big time in religion. Um, it was also medicinally, the apothecary rose, Rosa Gallica officinalis was used medicinally in everything from love potions uh, to treating indigestion and arthritis and skin conditions. Uh, you'll remember that in many, uh, noble houses, royalty would take on the rose as a heraldic mm -hmm. symbol. So famously, there'd be the white rose of York and then the red rose of Lancaster. And those were the two principles in the War of the Roses. Uh, and when the fight was finally settled, they combined their house symbols into the made up Tudor rose, which is uh, red on the outer petals and white on the inner petals. And the Tudors then ruled England from Henry the seventh onwards through Elizabeth the first. So uh, that's a, uh, that's, 
certainly prominent in, in royal history. And I'll mention one more thing here is that as a traditional symbol of secrecy, going way back to the Egyptians, the rose is sometimes displayed in the private meeting rooms of European parliaments. And those sessions that we in Canada might call in camera or in the US you might call closed sessions where legislators can speak their mind privately, uh, in those with the traditional rose symbol, you call those private meetings sub rosa or most literally under the rose. I have never heard that. Roses were truly weaved into their life and culture. My word. <clears throat> now, probably the first rose legend I remember hearing back 30 years ago when I fell in love with historical roses was Rosa Mundy, an early striped rose. And this story includes a queen, Queen Eleanor, and a king, Henry II. And they're also featured in one of my all-time favorite movies. It doesn't have anything to do with the rose, but the movie was A Lion in Winter. And friends, side note, if you haven't seen this movie, I highly recommend it. Catherine Hepburn at her best. So Jason, tell us the Rosa Monday story. Yeah, great movie and a very rich time in uh, mm -hmm. legendary history so early on. And uh, of course, with uh, King Henry the uh, second of England and his wife, Eleanor. And you may even recognize their sons, John and Richard, as sort of uh, kings that showed up in the Robin Hood legends. Mm -hmm. uh, but in a nutshell, the story comes uh, again to secret forbidden love. In this case, between King Henry II and Rosamund Clifford, his mistress. Her name, Rosamund, was from the Latin Rosa Mundi, or Rose of the World, uh, apparently because of her beauty. And the jealous Queen Eleanor heard the rumors and set out to find where the king had hidden his lover. Uh, and this kind of sounds like something from Greek mythology, that the king uh, constructed a garden labyrinth with the fair Rosamund at the center of one of his country estates. And the Queen Eleanor solved the labyrinth using a spool <laughs> of thread to navigate the maze. Uh, so that's, that's uh, kind of fanciful. But apparently, uh, as the story goes, once she found the center and Rosamund, she gave the poor girl a choice. She had to drink a vial of poison suspended in rose oil or die by the knife. And as the story goes, <laughs> Eleanor chose the poison and later from the spot of her burial emerged the striped Gallica rose, Rosamundi. Uh, so it's all pretty fanciful and it bears only a slight resemblance to, to real history, but it was widely enough told that commonly peasants in England would go visiting her grave at this abbey garden and offer roses for many, many years before her, after her burial, uh, making themselves quite a nuisance to the, to the abbey <laughs> residents and so on. <laughs> Well, that is a fanciful story, but after watching Catherine in the movie and the relationship between Henry and Catherine, I can sort of envision this, truly. <laughs> okay, okay, Jason, let's head to France for stories of another woman who made her mark on the world of roses. She sure did. This is Josephine, Empress Josephine, the wife of Napoleon. And Sometime before 1800, as uh, Napoleon rose to power, Josephine purchased the estate at Malmaison and began to collect uh, all the known roses of the time, uh, mostly Gallicas, and there might have been about 200 at the time, but also as many other roses as she could source. She hired the famous artist Redoute mm -hmm. to paint the roses at Malmaison, and those prints remain some of the earliest and best resources for European historical roses. And as the story goes, so well known was her appetite for roses that the only ships that could make it through the naval blockade against France were those carrying her specimens uh, 
back from the Orient or the Americas. Another version of this story that I hear is that uh, Napoleon had instructed his generals to raid other ships and search their cargo for roses from around the world. I'm not sure which story I actually <laughs> like better here. Uh, but uh, much like the time of the Romans, uh, Josephine's garden was characterized as lavish, extravagant, decadent even, and rather informal. And the gardens outlasted Napoleon's reign somewhat, but fell into <laughs> disrepair after her death. Yes, that, that's that, that's so true. Um, but let's just think about it for a minute. Roses being given a pass through a naval blockade. We've got to love that one. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Changing the course of history for sure. Well, now it's time to bring us to a more modern age of roses. And of course, there'll be another queen. Yes. Now, at the end of Josephine's reign, and it's kind of a, a great timing for roses because it sort of marks that transition to the modern era of roses. You would see things such as rose exhibitions, horticultural societies and such mm -hmm. beginning in the middle of the 1800s. And at the same time, the Chinas and the Bourbon roses and later the hybrid perpetuals began their inevitable takeover uh, of the modern roses. So uh, it's at this point that the rose gardens became a little bit more formal. And this was following the fashion of Queen Victoria, who sort of favored that Italian style, more formal style of gardening. And that's what you would see modern mm -hmm. roses taking that on in their gardens. And maybe I'll, I'll just say one thing here is that uh, I'll add a gentle reminder that all the formality and fussiness of roses is a far more recent introduction throughout most of the history of roses. They've been grown for their usefulness mm -hmm. in perfume and rose water and herbal use. And they would have been grown in mixed plantings of monastery gardens and the apothecary's garden and against walls to scramble in the larger gardens as brambles and so on. So while the idea of an exclusively rose dedicated garden with its rigid geometry and manicured lawns and tea and big hats and so on, uh, that's quite pleasing to the eye, but it's also rather a new fashion in the grand scheme of roses. And so gardeners can definitely feel free to take the more formal approach if it appeals to them, but also to take the less formal historical approach of roses with no judgment at all from me. Well, absolutely. There's a, there's a place for everyone. But I will say that um, at the top of the garden trends for 2023 is cottage gardening. And that style gives us plenty of freedom in planting and, of course, always includes roses. And I couldn't be more pleased because that's my style of gardening. Absolutely. Informality. I, I, can't, I can't conform to the rigid geometry and you won't find me in a fancy hat at tea time. <laughs> I do like a fancy hat at tea time, but <laughs> I'm, no always looking, all from <laughs> I'm, I'm always looking for more places to plant and so formality just wouldn't work so now i'm thinking i wonder what rose stories from today will be legendary with generations to come what do you think i'm thinking peggy martin's rose is going to make the cut for sure yeah i, I it may actually do mm -hmm. i'm just wondering what are we doing that's different or interesting for next generations we'll see time will tell well, Jason, our time has come to a close, but it's been so great to have you today and to hear how roses have left their mark, and they certainly have for a long, long time. Well, thanks so much for having me, Teresa. It's been a pleasure. Well, friends, thanks for tuning in to today's show. I hope you enjoyed going back to take a look at roses through the ages, and there's more to come for Rose Chat, but until next time, 
happy gardening or happy garden planning. You've been listening to the Rose Chat Podcast with Chris Van Cleve and Teresa Byington, expert rose gardeners who want to help you achieve the rose garden of your dreams. Don't miss an episode. Listen anytime on our website at rosechatpodcast.com or listen on the go via the Rose Chat app on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Share this podcast with your social networks and join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using the hashtag RoseChat. Join us next time for another edition of the Rose Chat Podcast. The Rose Chat Podcast is a production of the Rose Chat Media Group, Birmingham, Alabama.